0: Good morning, good morning, thanks for being here uh, this morning. My name is Craig Warner, I am uh, the children's pastor here at First Baptist Church, and you're thinking, children's pastor, somebody has got to be out of town this week. Uh, and that is accurate. Um, Pastor Troy is uh, out of town, as, as well as Pastor Jeff. And um, Actually, right now, Pastor Troy was on the Tanzania trip. We sent them out a couple weeks ago. Uh, they've been working hard this past week, started making their way home uh, yesterday. Uh, they were afraid that they were going to get uh, stuck in Ethiopia, but they met their flight. Uh, They, I think, are currently in Atlanta this morning. And, you know, if they're not too carnal after a long week of work, they're probably live stream, or they should be at least. They should be joining us uh, via live stream. Uh, but they should get in this afternoon on time uh, from Atlanta. So. Um, and then Pastor Jeff uh, took the Nigros, Megan and Vinny, we sent them out last week. Uh, he took them over to Albania, getting them settled. Uh, later this week, he'll be headed over to Hungary while he's in the neighborhood, might as well stop and see the Horvaths uh, over in Hungary. Uh, and then he should be making his way home Friday. Uh, both those things we'll get to hear about um, next week at our Summer's End celebration. So that's, uh, that's a great service. We're going to look at all that God's done this summer uh, and then spend some time out back celebrating uh, with each other. So that's next week. Um, then after that, just to kind of give you a preview of what's coming, Pastor Troy will start a new series in September uh, talking about issues facing the church. That'll lead us up to the Certainty Conference. Make sure you're here for that, October 1st through the 4th. Um, And then after that, we'll get back into the book of Acts. So he finished up Acts 7 uh, a couple weeks ago. We'll get back into the book of Acts um, on the other side of of certainty. So, you know, this week is kind of just a a filler week, all right? So uh, we sent the Nigros out last week, Summer's End Celebration. Next week, uh, Troy said that, you know, I could preach on anything that I wanted to, but have you guys read the Bible lately? There is a lot of stuff in there. Um, and so uh, it was hard to, to pick on what to, what to talk about, so I thought about it, prayed about it, uh, talked to Troy about it, and decided just to share with you something that God has been showing me lately, something that I've been meditating on. So if you guys would, open your Bibles uh, to Psalm 78, if you have your Bibles with you. Psalm 78... Um, and this is something that the Lord has, has brought to my attention a couple times, and obviously most recently, if, you're, if you've been uh, reading through the Bible with us, um, uh, it was just uh, maybe a couple months ago that we were in Psalms, and, and, and he brought it back to my attention. Uh, but Psalm 78 is a relatively long psalm, as psalms uh, go, but we're going to look at the last three verses uh, today. But to give you a little bit of context, uh, this particular psalm was written by Asaph, not David, like most Psalms. Uh, You'll understand why that's significant when we get into our study here, but this chapter starts out with some of my favorite verses as a children's pastor, some of my favorite verses when we talk about our obligation to the next generation. Uh, And then what happens is Asaph then goes into the history of the nation of Israel um, and uh, their time in the wilderness and and then as as God begins to do some new things uh, among them. Um, he's, he's taken them through the history of Israel, and that's interesting because uh, there's only like three places in Scripture where we kind of get this, uh, this recounting of Israel's history. Uh, one of them is Psalm 78, the other one is Acts 7, which we were just in uh, a couple weeks ago, and so just to kind of tie that in, um, we see the, the recounting of Israel's history, and um, And and as I said, we're just going to look at the last three verses of this chapter, which from the author's perspective, from Asaph's perspective, this would have brought Israel's history up to their present day. Okay, So he's kind of going through everything, their time in the wilderness, all that, as God brings them into the promised land, and he begins to, uh, to give them leadership. And then he's, he's kind of counting, recounting all of those things, and then it brings us up to present day. And so let's go ahead and read uh, just the last three verses of this chapter together. Psalm 78, verses 70 through 72. He chose David also his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the ewes, great with young, he brought him to feed Jacob his people and Israel his inheritance. So he fed them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. Okay. Um, Now, there's a discussion today uh, that's usually going on, particularly in the sports realm, of, uh, of who's the greatest. Right? People are always talking about the greatest of all time or otherwise known as what? The GOAT, right? The greatest of all time. There's a discussion, the greatest of all time uh, in football. The GOAT of basketball. The GOAT of pickleball. What have you, okay? (laughs) People are always concerned about who's the greatest of all time. Well, today, uh, we're going to take a look uh, at David's life and see what it means to be great and the way that we get there. And before we get into that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Will you pray with me? Lord, we come to you this morning and um, we do just, uh, well, first of all, I just want to lift up the Tanzania team, Lord, as they're making their way back home uh, today. Just pray that you'll continue to provide for them safe travel, help them get through uh, customs and and everything, get on their next flight, get them back to Cleveland uh, safe this afternoon. I uh, look forward to hearing what you've done um, next week through that trip. But Lord, uh, today we just ask that, uh, that you would be with us, that your word would be preached and that your spirit would work, uh, Lord, and that you would receive the glory from everything that's said and done today. We pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, so first off, to get into it, we're going to take a look at the criteria for greatness. All right, so on your study sheet there, Roman numeral number one, the criteria for Greatness. Now, whenever you think of David, what's maybe the first thing that comes to mind? Right? Sometimes we might think king, right? When we we start talking about David, we think King David. Or maybe you think of him as a warrior, a a giant slayer, right? Or um, a psalmist, a a worship leader, someone who, who wrote scripture that we still read today. But I want us to look at what God refers to him as in verse 70. He says that he chose David also his what? Servant. servant. His servant. You see, David's greatest title was that of a servant. David's greatest t- title was that of a servant. Now, this title for David pops up all throughout Scripture, actually more than I realized until I, until I started doing uh, the study for today uh, but so let's take a look at a few of those instances and, and we'll see even more as we continue throughout our study this morning but look at 2nd Samuel three eighteen. it says now then do it for the Lord hath spoken of David saying by the hand of my servant David I will save my people Israel out of the hand of the Philistines and out of the hand of all their enemies now one of the titles of David that might come to mind when we think of him is is that of a warrior, right? But notice it doesn't say, David, my warrior, or my warrior David. But was David a warrior? Yes, of course he was. Do warriors fight for their people against their enemies? Yes. But God chose to give him the title of servant in 2 Samuel 3.18. Let's look also at 2 Samuel 7.26. Let thy name be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the God over Israel, and let the house of thy servant David be established before thee. Notice it doesn't say king, right? Was David a king? Yes, of course. Do kings have their house established and their lineage preserved? Yes, but God chose to refer to David by his greatest title, servant. And it runs in the family. When Saul was questioning David, when he volunteered to fight Goliath, look at how David refers to his father in 1 Samuel 17, 58. And Saul said to him, whose son art thou, thou young man? And David answered, I am the son of thy servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. So we see the previous generation before David. Uh, But then let's look at the next generation that followed David in Solomon. Uh, Solomon was David's son, his heir uh, as king. And look when he's asking God for wisdom to rule his people. Remember, this is Solomon speaking in 1 Kings 3, 6-7. through 7. And Solomon said, Thou hast shown unto thy servant David, my father, great mercy, according as he walked before thee in truth and in righteousness and in uprightness of heart with thee. And thou hast kept for him this great kindness, That thou hast given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. And now, O Lord my God, thou hast made thy servant, referring to himself, king instead of David, my father. So we see, even for David, it was a generational thing. We see this title of servant over and over again in Scripture. Uh, There are a lot of things that David could be remembered for, but he was memorialized as a servant. Acts thirteen thirty six and, you know, someday we'll get there in six months or so. I don't know how long we've been in there. We're halfway We're halfway there in the book of Acts. But look at this. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep and was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. He served and then he died. All right, that's quite the eulogy, isn't it? But the truth is, being a servant is the greatest aspiration that any of us could strive for. Look at what Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew when they're arguing over who will be the greatest in his kingdom, Matthew 20, 25 through 27. But Jesus called them unto him and said, okay, so they're all arguing, so Jesus says, all right, that's enough, right, I'm going to pull this car over, right, everybody gather around, (laughs) sit down. Jesus called them unto him and said, Ye know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them, but it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister, and whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. So lest anyone get the wrong idea, let me take a moment and define what we mean by greatness. When we talk about greatness in God's economy, it's all about how many people we can serve, not how many people serve us. So back in the first century, the world was set up the same way it is today. Jesus is telling his disciples that the way it works in the world is your greatness is determined by how many people you have under your authority, He says, ye know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. So imagine, if you will, for a moment, kind of the way that the world system of greatness is set up. It's it's like a pyramid. Okay, so at the very top of the pyramid, the highest point of the pyramid, is the pinnacle of greatness, right? And below that, every rock's responsibility is to support and to lift up that peak. And according to the world standards, the same is true when it comes to personal greatness. The person at the top of the pyramid is the greatest and is superior to everyone else. But what God has done is he has taken the world's definition of greatness and he has quite literally turned it on its head. He says, ye know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them and they that are great exercise authority upon them. That's the way the world works but it shall not be so among you. Whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. Whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. You know how the world works, but it shall not be so among you, church. Christ says that his standard of greatness is not according to how many people are under you in the hierarchy, but greatness is determined by how many people you are able to lift up. How many people you put before yourself? How many people you serve? Greatness is found at the base of the pyramid, at the lowest rung of the ladder. Greatness is not found at the top, but under the pile of humanity. And so along with David, the greatest title that any of us could hope for is that of a servant. And then let's take a look at David's greatest role. David's greatest role was that of a shepherd. David's greatest role was that of a shepherd. Look back at verse 70 of our passage. He chose David also his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. When God went looking for a man to lead his people, he went looking in the pasture. So let's take a look at that. Whenever God took David from the sheepfold, and let's go back at the account of when David was anointed as king. At this point in history, God has rejected Saul as king, and he sent the priest Samuel to go and to anoint a new king over Israel. And we see this play out in 1 Samuel 16. Verse 1. And the Lord said unto Samuel, How long wilt thou mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill thine horn with oil, and go. I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his sons. Down to verse 3. And call Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show thee what thou shalt do, and thou shalt anoint unto me him whom I name unto thee. Okay, so Samuel shows up. He calls Jesse and his sons to a sacrifice. He starts going down the line of Jesse's sons, waiting to see who God points out to see who God chooses. From Saul's, or excuse me, from Samuel's perspective, the prospects of king material are dwindling as he goes further down. The line, right? He goes through seven of eight sons. And then look at verse 10. Again, Jesse made seven of his sons to pass before Samuel. And Samuel said unto Jesse, The Lord hath not, what? Hath not chosen these. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Are are here all thy children? And he said, There remaineth yet the youngest. And behold, where is he? He keepeth the sheep. Samuel said unto Jesse, Send and fetch him for we will not sit down until he come thither. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and with all of a beautiful countenance and goodly to look to. That's what they used to say about me in high school. <laughs> and the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. Now in one verse, he went from keeping the sheep To being anointed as king. What does that tell you about God's qualifications for greatness? What does that tell you about those that God calls to greatness in his his kingdom? Well, take heart, brothers and sisters, because if you find yourselves lacking greatness by the world standards, you find yourself in the perfect position to be used by God. 1 Corinthians 1. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, hath God chosen, yea, and the things which are not, to bring to naught the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that, according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Do you meet that description? Do you meet, do you measure up to those qualifications? Because God knows I do. God chooses to use people like us not because he lacks discernment, but because he abounds in grace. David's role as a shepherd was seemingly small by the world standard. But it was exactly what God was looking for. And God doubles down, doubles down on this concept in verse 71. He says, from following the ewes, great with young. You see, David was taken from following a flock. From following a flock. And notice that God used the word following here. That is because before David could be considered to lead something, he first had to prove that he could follow. Also notice what it is that he's following around. From following the ewes, all right, the lady sheep's sheep, I don't think sheep's is a word, (laughs) at least the way I'm using it. From following the ewes, great with young, he's following around the mama sheep that are pregnant or nursing. How many of you have ever helped deliver a farm animal? before? Show of hands. All right. I haven't, but I've seen one on TV before. <laughs> it's messy from what I can tell, right? There's a lot of cleanup afterwards. It's not It's not the most glamorous job, is it? Yet you find the future king of Israel there. He's willing to get his hands dirty among those whom he has trusted to care for. You also notice that he's caring for or Some might say ministering to the young, the lambs, the youth of the flock. Maybe you could call them the children of the flock. You see where this is going. (laughs) As the children's pastor of FBC, this is where you might expect me to make some compelling connection to ministering to children and being great in the kingdom of God. But I'll leave that work up to the Holy Spirit to convict you of your sin for neglecting the children of the first Baptist flock. But I will say this, I will say this, if you want to get right with God, you can grab a connection card in the pew in front of you, just mark on there that you're interested in serving in children's ministry and someone will be in touch with you shortly. But the thing is, I'm not entirely joking. I believe that children's ministry is the most important ministry there is. And if you want to make the greatest impact possible in the kingdom of God, you invest the word of God into children. Our church is blessed to have some of the greatest servants of the Lord do just that to the children of First Baptist Church every week. Okay, let me get off my soapbox and point out that David was about in the lowest position that you could get. His father didn't even call him when Samuel showed up, remember? Remember? It says that Samuel sanctified Jesse and his sons. He called them to the sacrifice. Then they all showed up, sans David, right? David is nowhere to be found. Once they went through the list and God rejected each of them, Samuel's like, is there, a, is there another Jesse around here that has some sons? Am I, did I get the wrong Jesse, right? Or he says, is there any more, right? Oh, we forgot David. Someone go get David, right? That's how insignificant his role was. That's how small of a role uh, it was perceived to be. But greatness takes root among the minute and mundane and messy roles of responsibility, as evidenced in David's life. Look at 2 Samuel 7, 8. Now therefore, so shalt thou say unto my servant David, thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheepcote, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. That was the tra- trajectory of David's life, from servant to ruler. He went from following the flock to, number two, feeding a nation. From following a flock to feeding a nation. Look at verse 71 of our passage. From following the ewes, great with young, he brought him to feed Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. Consider this. Was there more to David's life than following sheep and ruling a nation? Yes, a lot more. After he was anointed to be king, he continued to care for his flock. He eventually fought and killed a giant. He became a great warrior. He became close to the king who eventually tried to kill him. He became best friends with the king's son. He fled the kingdom. He lived in caves, a man on the run. A lot happened between point A and point B in David's life. But God used all of those things to shape David for his purpose. So if you're somewhere in that place between point A and point B, trust God. Remain faithful, because even though David was anointed king, he had to be prepared to take the throne. Now, back to our text. This is also interesting uh, in, in verse 71. Notice the words that God chooses to use when referring to the nation of his people. He says, feed Jacob his people and Israel his inheritance. He refers to them both as Jacob and Israel. He uses both terms to refer to the same people group. This shows us the two types of responsibility that David had as their king. First, Jacob. It refers to his physical responsibility as king. Right? David had a very real responsibility to the people that he led to feed them physically. We're talking about actual lives of real people that required some actual skills of leadership. There were actual mouths to feed, real battles to be fought, a literal kingdom to build, And to maintain. And the skills for which David developed as a shepherd, and in that waiting period between being anointed as king and taking the throne. So there's a very physical, there's a very practical side to this. But then God also refers to his people as Israel. This refers to David's spiritual responsibility. David had a spiritual responsibility to the nation of Israel, as they were God's people. And God chose David to be their king. He had a responsibility to feed them spiritually. He was the one to bring the ark of God back into their midst and to lead them in worship. He had the desire to build the temple of God and laid the groundwork for his descendants to complete the task. Not to mention that the lineage of Jesus Christ flowed through the line of David. You see, when it comes to service, there is a physical and a spiritual aspect to it. And we'll get into to that some more uh, in our next point. But, but David was trusted with this great responsibility to lead a nation because he was able to be trusted with the little things, the sheep and their young. That's where it all started for David. And we see the same principle in the New Testament when Christ is sharing the parable of the uh, of the talents. Excuse me. Once the master returns and gets the report from his servants, look at what it says in Matthew 25:21. His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful what servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. We see that same jump from servant to ruler in David's life. David was faithful over a few things, over what little he was given, a flock of sheep. And because of that, he was made a ruler over a nation. And while it's explicit in Scripture, this principle is exemplified throughout many great men's lives in the Bible as well. I'm sure you can think of a few others, but I'm just going to run through a list of a few. First, there's Moses. In Exodus 3, we see that Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him. He went from keeping the flock The next thing you know, the angel of the Lord appears unto him in the flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. Right? I think we know what happens from there. Moses went from shepherding a flock to delivering a nation. Gideon, Judges 6. And there came an angel of the Lord and sat under an oak which was in Ophrah that pertained unto Joash the Abizorite. And his son Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. He's there just threshing wheat, doing his job. Look at verse 12. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. That's what they used to call me in high school. (laughs) Gideon went from threshing wheat to leading a small army to great victory. Elisha, plowing with twelve yoke of oxen. And then uh, Elijah comes along and casts his mantle upon him, choosing him to, to follow in his footsteps. Elisha went from plowing in the field to a prophet's apprentice. Amos He says, I was just a herdman, a gatherer of sycamore fruit, and the Lord took me as I followed the flock. Amos went from fruit-picking farmer to prophet. And then there's the disciples, right? They were fishermen. And Christ says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. The disciples went from fishermen to fishers of men. Men, we see this principle all throughout Scripture. But if you're still not convinced yet that God takes the lowliest of servants to use them for the greatest tasks, how about some homegrown examples? Last week, we sent out Vinny and Megan Nigro to Albania. They went from investing in recovering addicts to an internship in Albania. Matt and Jenny Brocker, they went from children's ministry to church planting in Columbus. Kale and Brooke Horvath, from managing middle schoolers to missionaries in Hungary. And I think that's the hardest group of the three. The middle schoolers, not the Hungarians. <laughs> I can say that because they're not here this morning, the middle schoolers. I would have said it if they were here anyways. Listen, God is still looking for servants today. Will he find you serving? Will he find you in the pasture? Will he find you in the field? When God comes to choose a servant from the sheepfold, will he find you among the lambs? Because service is the criteria for greatness. Roman numeral number two, the components of service. So if service is the criteria for greatness, then let's look at what makes up service. The components of service. We see these in verse 72. So he fed them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. When it came to serving the nation that David was leading, he was, uh, we see that the first component was integrity of heart. Integrity of heart. And if you're familiar with the life of David, you know that it's back in the passage that we, we looked at earlier where Samuel came to anoint him as king that we get this popular verse when Samuel's looking at David's oldest brother and thinks, okay, surely this is the guy. What does God tell Samuel? 1 Samuel sixteen seven. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the what? The heart. The Lord looks on the heart. This is another example of the difference between God's way and the world's way. When God is looking for a candidate, he doesn't look on the outside, he doesn't check his resume, he's not concerned about his qualifications because God can overcome all of those things. When God looks at a man, he looks at his heart because the heart is a matter of motive. The heart is a matter of motive. And if if a servant starts with the right motive of heart, then there's no limit to what God can do with him. And this should be no surprise when we're talking about David, because what's David's claim to fame? He was a man after God's own heart, right? We see it a couple places, but um, clearly in Acts thirteen twenty two. And when he had removed him, he raised when he removed Saul. He raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. David was a man after God's own heart, which meant he was motivated by the will of God. His own motives, his own desires, his own will, they didn't just take a back seat to what God wanted. They became one with what God wanted. David is the one who wrote in Psalms uh, 37, 4, Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine what? Heart. Heart. God will give you the desires of your heart when you delight in the Lord. Not in what the Lord can do for you, but when you delight in the Lord and nothing else. You become preoccupied with God's will. You become concerned with keeping God's word. And this exact phrase, integrity of heart, uh, shows up two times in Scripture, Uh, Both times it refers to David. So let's take a look at at what it meant for David to have integrity of heart. We have a bit more of an understanding in 1 Kings 9-4 when God refers to to David again. Uh, And if thou wilt walk before me as David thy father walked in integrity of heart. Okay, so he walked in integrity of heart. What does that mean? Well, it means that he walked in uprightness. To do according to all that I have commanded thee and wilt keep my statutes and my judgments. David was a man after God's own heart, and he had integrity of heart because he kept God's word. While David's position may have changed over the course of his life, his passion was consistent. He went from shepherd boy to errand boy, to warrior, to man on the run, to king. And even when his kingdom was threatened to be overthrown, David's desire to see the will of God's, uh, God's will fulfilled was unwavering. When we serve, we must start in the same place with a desire to see God's will fulfilled and his word kept. If your motives are selfish and prideful, you can fool a pastor, you can fool a ministry leader, but you can't fool God. God looks on the heart and he will reject any service that does not come out of integrity. So that's the first component, and it's a matter of motive. Our second component is skillfulness of hands. Skillfulness of hands. And the hands are a matter of ability. The hands are a matter of ability. Back in verse 72, So he fed them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. Again, we see the spiritual aspect with the heart and a physical aspect with the hands. Just like uh, we saw back with David's responsibility to... Jacob and Israel. And while there is a physical side to serving, right, your skill, it doesn't compare to the spiritual side, your motive. Because character, character will always outweigh ability. And the sad truth is that our world has seen too many people lead from their skill rather than their integrity. And that's tragically all too often found in the church as well. So our priority in our service should be our heart behind it but with that being said the practical application is not to be neglected either for david all these essential skills for being a mighty warrior and a great king they were developed as a shepherd and you have god-given gifts you have natural abilities you have developed skills you've obtained experience whatever it is you're good at use it to serve the lord and his church And just to be clear, it doesn't have to be exclusively with your hands, okay? Uh, It can be your mouth, your voice, your brains, your eyes, your ears, your feet, your legs. The list goes on and on. Whatever God has blessed you with, whatever uh, skills and abilities you have, man, use those. God gave you those. Use those to serve him and to edify the church. But you are most effective when you serve with both the right motive and capable skills. Your heart is where your desire originates. And your hands are the expression of that desire. God is glorified and the body is edified when you serve from both together. All right? So let me give you an example. And this is probably just the most obvious example of the worship team. If you um, have the right motive but no skill, well, then the church body suffers. Okay? (laughs) Okay? If you want God to receive glory and praise, but you can't sing or play an instrument, then we're going to redirect you to find somewhere (laughs) other than the worship team to fulfill that desire. Maybe you can help in the sound booth. And that's a very real service. We couldn't pull off this morning without the guys back there. So thank you, fellas. Any ladies up there? Thank you, fellas. (laughs) Now, if you have great skill, beautiful voice, you know, great musician, but if you have the wrong motive up here, well, then God doesn't get the glory. God doesn't get the glory. If you only want to be on the worship team because you want to be seen, recognized, or you want to receive the attention, then you don't belong up here no matter how skilled you are. God is glorified and the church is edified when you serve with the right heart and with the gifts that he's given you. Finding practical ways to utilize your gifts and abilities is a very valid form um, of service to the Lord. But there is another level to this concept uh, of, um, of serving the Lord with your hands, skillfulness of hands. Uh, for those of us that have a completed and a preserved word of God, there is a deeper meaning to skillfulness of hands. And that has to do with your ability to know and to use the word of God properly. So let's take a look at this little study here. First 1 John 1.1. 1, 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For us this morning, we have our hands on the word of life right here, and we must handle it with skill and integrity of heart. And just to be clear, that doesn't mean preaching and teaching exclusively. I'm afraid that people will hear that during this portion and think, well, I'll never, you know, I'll never preach, or I'll never be in front of a, a classroom, you know, the way that we think of those things. Um, but, and then, and then that excuse you from being skilled in handling the Word of God, okay? That's, that's not true. This goes for applying God's Word in any area of your life at every level, right? Whether it's with your friends, whether it's in your home, with your family. Ideally, you would be in a discipleship relationship with someone, Right, And the list goes on and on. You'll be serving somewhere. But to be an effective servant, we have to be able to handle the Word of God with skill. Because look at what we don't want to be accused of in 2 Corinthians 4 two. We don't want to be accused of handling the Word of God deceitfully. Right? We want to handle the Word of God with integrity. The opposite of deceit. We don't want to be accused of handling it deceitfully. We can learn to handle the word of God with skill by following the command that we're given in 2 Timothy 2:15. This should be a familiar verse with this crowd. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's skill when you can rightly divide the word of truth. So how do you gain these skills? Well, it's the same way you gain skills in any area of life. You study. You work at it, you practice, you implement it, you study, you work, you study, you work. It's no different when it comes to the Word of God. You study to show yourself approved, and a workman needeth not be ashamed. You put it to work, right? And then you can rightly divide the Word of Truth. And we offer such training regardless of your level of understanding, right? We have discipleship. We have training hour, right? 9 a.m. training hour. We've been walking through the Bible. We've been trying to help you get a handle on it. Tom's been filling in the last several weeks uh, for Jeff, and Jeff will pick it back up when he gets home. It's a great resource, great training to be able to handle the Word of God with skill. right? We have ministry tools and training starting up this fall. Uh, that's the next step after discipleship. We have our Living Faith Bible Institute. That's the next step after MTT, all of which are starting up this fall. We have the training for you to get the skill and the ability to handle the Word of God. But to go back to the integrity of heart, that's between you and the Lord. You can be skilled in the Scripture, but if you don't do it with humility and integrity or godly motives, it will spell disaster for yourself and those under your influence. Because you can't do it on your own. This book is spiritually discerned, and God is the one that gives us The ability to handle it properly. 2 Corinthians 3, 5-6. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament. God has given us his word, and he makes us able ministers of it. If that's not enough for you, then you don't understand exactly what you hold in your hands this morning. Because in the Psalms, the Bible refers to itself as a light. In your hands is a lamp that will shine through the darkness and guide your feet down a shore path. In Jeremiah, the Bible refers to itself as a hammer. In your hands this morning is the greatest tool to fix all of life's problems and the means to break through to the hardest of hearts. In Ephesians, in Hebrews, the Bible refers to itself as a sword. In your hands is a weapon that can cut to the heart of any issue and fight against any foe. So the question is not, is the word of God enough? The question is, do you have the skill to use it? Do you have the training to wield it? Because if you will have the heart to obey it and the, the ability to handle it, then you have the start of something great. And we could stop there. Today, but I would be remiss if we have this message on greatness and didn't take our last minutes together to point out the greatest example of greatness and the greatest example of service, which are both found in the same man, Jesus Christ. Yes. Last week, Jeff said that he is the ultimate example of everything, and that is so true. Not to mention that everything that we saw with David today points us to Jesus Christ. Because if greatness is found in those that you serve, then Jesus is the greatest of all time. Jesus is the goat because he was first the lamb. I know that's cheesy. But if he wouldn't have, but if he wouldn't have humbled himself to be our sacrificial lamb to pay for our sins, man, then we're going to take a look at where he is today. We, find, we, find, um, we, we see his service to humanity and... Uh, The greatness of his glory in one passage in Philippians 2, 6 through 11. Let's look at it together briefly and then we'll be done. Who, this is referring to Jesus, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, not little reputation, but no reputation, took upon him the form of a what? Of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The one who is exalted above all, who has angels crying out, holy, holy, holy for all of eternity. He humbled himself. Remember, God's definition of greatness is determined by how many people you serve in Jesus Christ went from as high as you can go in glory to as low as you can go in service. Because he humbled himself to die for the sin of the whole world. And because he did that, no one else could do. He did what no one else could do. He was elevated to a position of greatness that no one else could obtain. Back to verse 8. Being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, given him a name which is above every name, That the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Because there was no service too low for the Lord, there is no limit to his greatness. It is a greatness that deserves our praise and our surrender. It is an example of service that demands that we live our lives the same way, in service to our Savior and those that he came to save.